Good day and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today's episode is the fourth in our series and we'll be doing some more scene setting prior to telling you about the very first RAF C-130 task. I'm your host, Bill Karolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian Air Force and Royal Australian Air Force, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s, titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. Today we're going to look at three general topics, all of which took place in the lead-up to the first RAF C-130A task. Firstly, we'll touch on the impact of C-130s on RAF-based Richmond. Then we'll cover the acceptance and ferry flights to get the new C-130As to Australia. And we'll finish off with a strategic situation that resulted in the very first C-130 task. Let's get stuck into it. First, we'll look at how the size of a C-130A impacted its new home at RAF-based Richmond. Richmond was the second base acquired by the Royal Australian Air Force way back in the 1920s. Construction got going in the 1930s, with most hangars, of course, being built to suit aircraft of the time, much smaller than a Hercules. In the 1950s, Dakotas were typical of the aircraft using Richmond, and they were 95 feet wide, 64 feet long, and 17 feet high. Contrast this to the first C-130s, which were 98 feet long, 133 feet wide, and 39 feet tall. The height was a particularly difficult problem to deal with in the RAF because few hangars could accommodate this size of plane, and no hangars at Richmond could. To provide 36 Squadron with a facility in which to house its headquarters, aircrew, and to conduct frontline maintenance, Hangar 320 was built for 36 Squadron. It had enough room for two C-130s, and this hangar is still operational today and is used by 37 Squadron. Despite the J model being about 15 feet longer, 37 Squadron can fit two C-130Js in this hangar. But a second hangar was required for deeper level of maintenance, so in 1959, a hangar from Rathmines, New South Wales, was disassembled to meet the need. It was moved to Richmond via barge, if you can believe that. This project was a huge undertaking, and number 5 Airfield Construction Squadron was given the task. It took 5 ACS six months to disassemble the 240 by 180 by 70 feet hangar, which was one of the largest in the Southern Hemisphere in the late 1950s. It then took five trips by barge to get the components up the Hawkesbury River to Richmond. Under the supervision of Flight Lieutenant Burnett, 5 ACS then rebuilt the hangar using a slightly redesigned roof structure, and it became known as Hangar 522. As an aside, imagine giving this job to a flight lieutenant in today's risk-averse world. It'd probably be a wing commander or higher. The new hangar had room for three C-130s and was used by Number 2 Aircraft Depot, or 2AD, for deeper level maintenance. In addition to hangars 320 and 522, Richmond would eventually be provided with more warehouses to house the significant C-130 spares holdings, another large maintenance hangar, number 523, which is still there today and is capable of holding four C-130s, in-ground refueling, propeller service bays, a new paint hangar, air movements facilities, engine run facilities, a wash bay, the transformation at Richmond over the life of the C-130s was truly remarkable. While all this infrastructure work was underway, 
The crews completed their training in late 1958, and it was time to ferry the new C-130As home to Australia. The first C-130A, A97-205, was accepted on the 6th of November 1958 at the Lockheed plant in Marietta, Georgia. It was a momentous occasion because it marked a few key events in global affairs. Being its first foreign customer, the C-130A sale to Australia was important for Lockheed and its future sales because it demonstrated to the world that the aircraft was available to non-U.S. militaries. The RAF purchase also represented a strengthening of ties between the U.S. and Australia, as foreshadowed by Prime Minister Menzies. Finally, the acceptance of a front-line fleet of modern transport aircraft enabled the ADF to be much more expeditionary. Given the significance of the moment, the Australian ambassador to the United States, Howard Beale, and commanding officer 36 Squadron, Wing Commander Ian Olerenshaw, attended celebratory functions in the U.S., including the acceptance ceremony in Marietta. The first flight occurred shortly thereafter on the 8th of November 1958 when Ola Renshaw captained 205 for its shakedown flight and ferry from Dobbins Air Force Base to Seward Air Force Base. The new C-130As were delivered relatively quickly thereafter and flown to Australia in small groups. Beginning with A-97-209, the first ferry mission was planned to deliver five aircraft to Richmond and it was commenced by Flying Officer Stan Highland and his co-pilot Flying Officer David Street out of Seward. The other four aircraft of the first wave departed Seward over the following days, and those five aircraft gathered at Hamilton Air Force Base, which is just north of San Francisco, California. 206 arrived on the 3rd of December, 205, 207, and 210 on the 4th, and on the 5th of December, Ola Renshaw departed Hamilton for Hickam Air Force Base, Hawaii, and then flew via Kiribati, Fiji, and on to Richmond, followed by the other four aircraft. Although they fought stiff winds across the Pacific without external fuel tanks, these five aircraft arrived via a flypast of Sydney to a grand reception ceremony at Richmond on the 13th of December, 1958. The significance of the purchase drew dignitaries such as the Minister for Air, Mr. Osborne, and the Chief of Air Staff, Air Marshal Frederick Scherger, who became an Air Chief Marshal, to Richmond to greet the five crews on their arrival. Over the next few weeks, 36 Squadron flew sorties to key locations in Australia to give interested stakeholders and the public a look at the shiny new aircraft. The remaining aircraft were ferried to Australia at later dates. 208, 211, 212, and 213 left Seward on the 29th of December and arrived in Australia on the 5th of January. And the final three, 214, 215, and 216, were picked up by crews that flew back to the U.S. and arrived at Richmond on the 3rd of March. Those first few aircraft arrived in some interesting strategic circumstances. The National Strategy for Defense and Foreign Affairs was directly pertinent to the types of operations and roles that C-130s were expected to undertake, and you could argue that the availability of the C-130 somehow influenced those strategies. When 36 Squadron commenced operations in January 1959, the strategic situation had the Australian Defence Force actively engaged in Southeast Asia. Do you recall much about that era? The Cold War pitted communism versus the democratic West. Russia had launched three Luna probes to the moon. Castro took over Cuba. Canada cancelled the F-105 Arrow. Lee Kuan Yew established Singapore as a self-governing colony. The first US ballistic missile sub was launched. Several imperial colonies had revolutions leading to independence. 
the first South versus North Vietnamese combat engagements took place. And here's a cracker. The Barbie doll made its debut. The Australian government was primarily focused on two key strategies, imperial defense and stopping the spread of communism in the near region. The anti-communist strategy aligned with the U.S. strategic defense policy and imperial defense supported British defense policy. Australia was hedging its bets on both accounts. Additionally, Australia had an eye on enhancing its national power in the near region and increasingly supported its neighbors. With regard to air mobility, these policies were a reflection that the government's predictions of the 1950s were correct. Due to the expeditionary nature of Australia's commitments, all three services had growing air mobility requirements to support their own training and operational resupply needs. These factors resulted in high expectations for the new Hercules. Initially, this was in support of Australia's focus on forward defense. There were a few key events taking place that were directly related to Australia's focus on forward defense. These included the imperial interests in Malaya, where the Malayan emergency was still being prosecuted in 1959, fears about the rise of China and Indonesia, Indonesia's confrontation against Malaysian independence, which was called Konfrontasi, and we'll cover that in great detail in a future podcast, Indonesian claims on West Papua, and U.S. pressure to curtail the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. This latter strategic pressure resulted in ADF responses to communist aggression, such as the perceived threat against Thailand from Laos in 1962. This resulted in a 79-squadron presence in Ubon, Thailand for six years, deployed and supplied, of course, by C-130s. Additionally, in 1958, two squadron deployed to Malaya to replace one squadron as part of the Far East Strategic Reserve, and a flight of six Dakotas was attached to two squadron at Butterworth for local air transport needs. In 1967, by the way, that Dakota flight was renamed Transport Support Flight and remained in Southeast Asia until 1982. With such a large ADF presence in Southeast Asia, by 1959, Butterworth was home to more than 4,000 RAF members and their families. These forces came to rely on a regular resupply from Australia by C-130s through the 1959-65 period and into the Vietnam era, and again, we'll cover those in a future podcast. Given the scope of the commitment to Southeast Asia, it's fitting that the very first C-130 task was a flight from Richmond to Darwin as the first leg of a mission to Malaya. It was flown in A-97-205 on the 13th of January, 1959, and it was captained by the commanding officer of 36th Squadron, Wing Commander Olorenshaw. The crew continued the next day via Changi, which is in Singapore, and then on to Butterworth. A couple of weeks later, on the 31st of January, 1959, Squadron Leader Foster Hamilton in 207, and on the 2nd of February, 1959, Flying Officer Choquinot, and I have no idea if I've said that properly, in 208, flew sorties on Operation Sabre Ferry 2. This took 77 Squadron Sabres to Malaya to replace 3 Squadron. But unlike the latter's move, which took two Qantas Constellations and seven Dakotas, the 77 Squadron move only took two C-130As, thereby demonstrating the massive improvement in lift capability that the ADF had. It didn't take long before these tasks were typical of most Hercules missions. In other words, they were simply the movement of cargo and passengers from one well-supported, normal airfield in a benign environment to another. We'll talk more about what was called trash hauling, or doctrinally, 
air logistics support in our next episode. That's a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. If you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. You can find the Workhorse Podcast on all the usual platforms and on my own website, spartanspirit.au. That's one word, spartanspirit.au. And this website also has updated information about the Air Mobility Workhorse book. Thanks for listening.